and I and I have said that in many interviews uh, since October seventh that I feel I've led and continue to lead a life with with goodness overflowing. At this moment, my my coast my cup is overflowing with tears, but I have faith and belief that my cup will overflow again with goodness, and that Hirsch will come back. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome to the special episode of the Corin podcast. And for today's episode, uh, we are joined by our colleague, uh, Karen Meltz, production manager and senior editor at Corin. Karen, why don't you tell our listeners how come you're joining us today for this episode? Thank you so much, Ari and Alex, for being a part of this special podcast today. So we are going to be talking with Rachel Goldberg and John Polin. As everyone knows, their son, Hirsch Goldberg Polin, has been kidnapped already for 136 days. Um, grueling days. Uh, and we, my special connection is that I grew up with Rachel, also with John, but Rachel and I were in class together. So it's even uh, more meaningful to be able to be a part of this conversation today. I think also one of the things that's emphasized by Karen joining us today is that I'm sure a lot of people have heard in discussions that things going on in Israel over the past few months, the nature of Israel and the nature of the Jewish world is that everyone sort of is maximum two steps if not one step removed from someone directly affected by this so obviously we appreciate karen joining us who has that connection to here so thank you for joining us karen thank you something might be questioning why uh, we at karen jerusalem uh, would be speaking with uh, rachel and john um given that they haven't written a book um they may not have a direct connection with Karen, but as Arya said, we're all only one or two steps removed uh, from somebody who has been directly affected um, by events here in Israel over the last few months. Um, and so speaking with uh, Rachel and John is really about uh, how we as Jewish people um, are all connected. We're all um, living through this uh, together. Um, but to speak to Rachel and John and hear about how they um, are living through this uh, unimaginably more acutely um, I th we all think is something incredibly important. And writing their story from, from the first day, from October 7th, writing the story. And we've been like reading along with them every day with their daily posts, their many interviews and everything else that it, it, it is a book, unfortunately. It's one that never wants to be written, but here we are and we need to discuss it. We need to make sure that the world continues to know what's going on here and that none of the 134 hostages that are still remaining in Aza, that we should never forget any of them. So with that in mind, um, we will now hear from Rachel and John, uh, their Torah, al Lachat. And we are joined today by Rachel Goldberg and John Pollen. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, can you start off by teaching us your Torah, al Lachat, on one leg? Oh boy. Okay. Um, well, that's really hard for me because I realized when I saw that question that I have a lot of Torahs and I'm not really good at standing on Regal Echad, but um, so am I allowed to mention a couple ideas quick, even though, I mean, I guess you have no choice but to say yes. <laughs> the first thing I'll say is that because I came to uh, Dati Judaism, observant Judaism later than um, some other people have been privileged to do, 
uh, in Devarim, uh, in Parak Lamed, when it talks about lo bashamayim, he, you know, like this Torah that I'm giving you today when Hashem is talking, don't worry, it's not in the sky that you have to find someone to come and bring it to you, or it's not across the water that it has to, it could be whatever it is for you. And I, I've always loved that idea that, that our Torah is what it is to each of us individually. So that, that speaks very loudly to me. Um, and, uh, you know, what? maybe I'll leave it at that. That was like very good. I have some other ideas, but we could talk about that later and we'll give John a turn to tell his Torah. So I'm going to go to the most classic al regalachat Torah, which is the Ve'ahavtan Recha Kamocha. And, and I want to apply it to today in two different lenses. One is, I presume that the listeners of this podcast understand that our son has been held hostage for 136 days. And so I think about Hirsch, our son, all day, every day, and I think about his captors, and I think what happened on October 7th was the absence of humanity, as the Pope said to Rachel a few months ago. But I hope that today, whoever's holding him is finding some humanity and treating him well, reasonably well. So I'm constantly saying that to his captors. But the second side of it is Rachel's talked a lot in the last 136 days about how we are every family's, every person's worst nightmare right now. And it makes people uncomfortable to talk to us, to be with us, to see us on the street. And numerous times per day, I have an interaction where somebody comes over and they have nothing to say, or they even say, I don't know what to say. And it's awkward. And I'm constantly telling myself, I understand people are awkward. Just respond with encouragement, with thanks, with support. Let them know that just them showing up is strengthening to us. And I try to respond to them the way that I would want people to respond to me in my awkward moments. That's It's it's interesting because from the outside, um, you, both of you are very public figures right now as much as you don't want to be. That's not the position that you chose to be, but unfortunately you have to be in order to be fighting for Hirsch's life and Hirsch's return which we hope is today. Uh, but from coming from the outside and also like so many people now that have, have that, that, that look at your Facebook, that see you on the news and everything, it, it's so interesting because we see it as that everybody's trying to embrace you and everybody wants to be close. So obviously like that's easy when you're not actually in front of you. When then you are in front of, front of you, it's a whole different story. So um, it's a good lesson. It's a good lesson for everybody to realize like, hey, this is a situation that you're going in and as, and, as, and as awkward as it is, don't shy away from it. You need everyone to be there. You need everyone to be present because we need Hirsch and the other 133 hostages let out today. Right. And you know, the other thing that is a piece of that as well for your Torah, John, is that you know, unfortunately, we are in a situation where I don't know that everyone is saying Hirsch is our son. Uh, you know, we should treat these this family and these 134 hostage families as if it is our own family. There's been recently this really unfortunate, excruciatingly painful uh, campaign to, to, to kind of to kind of to kind of put you know hostage families like in a separate category than than Am Yisrael, than the whole entire nation of Jewish people around the world. And that's been really, really painful for us. And I think 
again, if people can get back into this idea of kamocha, we are kamocha, we are just like you. Hirsch is just like your son. Hirsch is just like your loved one. And maybe that can help bring us more together, which is something we've all been struggling with pre-October 7th, you know, as a nation. If we can go back to, to pre-October 7th, which I know is a difficult sort of headspace to, to um, try and maintain. Um, but you came with, with two different Torot, um, perhaps there's connections there. Um, but could you tell us a bit about what was it like growing up in the Goldberg Pollen house? What was, you know, the values that you tried to instill in your family, the things that you uh, either actively consciously discussed with, with each other of, you know, what, what light do you want your family to bring into the world or the things that, you know, you've, you realized or people uh, had, had seen um, and sort of how, who, I guess, again, who is, who is Hirsch, your son? Well, definitely something that we constantly, um, I don't think this is so unique, uh, we're stressing in our house was Derech Eretz uh, before anything else. And uh, we often would say to the kids from when they were little, when they would go to school, you know, do the best you can. But the most important thing is that you must be respectful to your teachers and to your peers. And, and at that, everything else we could handle. You come home with a bad grade, that's fine. You come home and, you know, you forgot to bring your homework home with you. That's fine. But that it was absolutely unacceptable to ever get a phone call that that any of our kids were not showing their hearts. And whenever we would go to parent teacher meetings, um, it always made us feel OK, you know, when they would say, oh, you know, for Hirsch, you know, he could definitely be trying harder because he's he's bright. And so he, he could have always been doing better. Um, but they would always say, and he's very funny, but he's not a clown and he's never disrespectful. He always shows Derek Heretz and our girls as well. And that made everything all right. It was the other step was forgiven because there was Derek Heretz. So like, I think that that's like one of the Mido, one of the values that we very much stressed uh, always in our house. I think the other one that I'd add is it wasn't even so much a deliberate one that we planned before having kids or ever planned, but is just making Yiddishkeit meaningful for our kids and for the family, which is to say, did we talk periodically about Torah and Halakha and so on? Yes. But really, I just think that we wanted our kids to see meaning in everything we were doing, right? Go, going to shul and, 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 and struggling with Kashrut and other things as we traveled, um, uh, just just to make it meaningful, which doesn't necessarily mean fun, but meaningful that they would that they would get something, see value in our lifestyle. And we said when the, you know before we made Aliyah, before we moved to Israel, there was so much kavana, there was so much intention in leading the lifestyle that we led. We we made Aliyah from Richmond, Virginia, which was a beautiful but very tiny uh, community, uh, religious community. And so everything was very much with intention. Uh, Hirsch, when he was in kindergarten, was the only uh, Jewish boy in his class, actually, at the JCC preschool. It just worked out that way. There was another class that was also his same age, but but in his particular class, he was the only Jewish boy. And, you know, there became an issue where it wasn't a religious 
uh, a traditionally observant preschool and all the birthday parties were always thrown on Saturdays on Shabbat. And we didn't live in a place where it was walkable. And so that first year, and I didn't feel comfortable saying to these people, you know, Hirsch can't come if you do this on Saturday, because those people all went to church on Sunday. So it was, you know, Sundays wasn't Sundays were not a good day for them to have their parties. And so for that whole first year, I didn't want people to feel bad. So I would just RSVP. Unfortunately, he can't come. And then by the end of that year, at some point, somebody told someone and like the whole class sort of came to me to apologize that they didn't realize that that was why Hirsch didn't come to any of these birthday parties. And the following year, they did make it work and they did switch parties to Sunday afternoons so that Hirsch could come. But all of those lessons taught our kids, you know, that what we were doing was important and they didn't feel resentful. You know, Hirsch wasn't resentful. He just noticed that he didn't go to these parties. But when we made Aliyah, it was something that I actually, in many ways, I missed that there was an intentionality behind being Jewish that ended up sort of receding a bit due to the ease of being Jewish here. So speaking about Kavana, that's really something that right now it's probably takes on a whole new level. And you speak about a lot about Tehillim and how spirituality and Tefillah and Tehillim has been part of your life, but how has that really like shaped over the past few months in particular? Well, um, I'm very thankful that we have uh, our faith and that we have this rich heritage to draw on during this excruciating time, during this difficult time. Um, you're right, Karen, that uh, Tehillim speak very loudly to me. And in fact, this is, I was not paid to make this plug, but I did get a brand new purple Corin Tehillim book that I've been using from my dear friend, Karen, and some other friends from Chicago uh, that was left by my front door. So I took my old book that was not from Corn Publishing, you should know my old Tehillim, uh, which I which has been a little bit retired. And now I use my purple Corn Tehillim book every day. Um, I find it fascinating to read. I have to admit that a lot of the Tehillim I read in English because it my Hebrew is just not very good and, and my Havanah is not very good. So even if I can read it, I don't understand what I'm reading. And in this particular uh, edition that that Karen gave me, first there's an explanation of what the Tehillim is going to be talking about, and then underneath it's really explaining insights into the actual Tehillim that you just read. And I do feel that it's been really a source when I'm having like super anxiety or super angst during the day. I can just take it out. And I sometimes I go to like 126 to talk about captives being returned to Zion and how we'll be so happy and we'll be like dreamers. That's like an easy one that we read on Sh on Shabbat, but I actually read it almost every day or 121, you know, or 23, like ones that we always go back to. I will say that that um, Huff Gimmel, that 23, you know, which um 
which talks about this famous line that I learned once with uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner, who's the famous uh, Zichron Olivracha that died this past year, who wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he wrote it in the wake of losing his only son uh, to a horrible disease. And I was in a class with him once and someone asked him, what al-regalachat is your Torah? And he said without hesitating, kosi rivaya. And it just, you know, took my breath away that he could say my cup overflows. And I and I have said that in many interviews uh, since October 7th, that I feel I've led and continue to lead a life with with goodness overflowing. At this moment, my my coast, my cup is overflowing with tears, but I have faith and belief that my cup will overflow again with goodness and that Hirsch will come back. And uh, so those are things that have been really strengthening to me during this time. Karen, I'll take a stab at the same question, which is, I've said a lot in this period that it feels in some ways, and it's so important to say deal because we're not there, but like, like Aninut, when the time between somebody's death and their burial, when Jews are exempt from performing positive commandments, and there are a few reasons why they're exempt, one is the person who just passed away can no longer perform its vote. So their close loved ones sort of, you know, in solidarity don't. Um, a second idea is that the journey of prepping the body and the soul to go from this world to the world to come is so all encompassing that there's no time for mitzvot. And then there's just the distraction. People's minds aren't there when they've just lost a loved one. And I believe Hirsch is alive and coming home. So this is not Aninut, but I, I experienced some of those same feelings and emotions and realities. And as such, I find that mitzvot are hard. I, I've said many times that maybe we should be exempt when you're in a period of, of, of captivity, a, a relative in captivity in this unknown, that maybe we should be exempt from mitzvot, but we're not. And so some of what speaks to me is the things that acknowledge the challenges of doing these mitzvot, right? So Rachel's always liked that that one sentence before the Amidah, before the Shmonasrei, Adashem, Sifatai Tiftahu Fi Agitilatecha, right? Before we go into the Amidah, we're saying to Hashem, open my lips so that I can sing your praises, acknowledging that I need your help so that I can praise you. And I feel like that's so much of everything that we do nowadays. And and the second piece is all of the Tehillim and all of our liturgy that's about you know, just calling out to Hashem to help us. So an artist who we don't know bumped into me on the street on Friday and said, I can't believe I'm seeing you. I'm here from Atlanta and I created a piece of art for you. And it was a beautiful piece of art that said, um, and so it made me think about that. And I went back to, um, to, to Hillam 20 and, and read the whole thing over and even backed up a, a pasuk from the end where it says, Like, it describes Hirsch's story and what we're going through. Like, they slumped over, they fell over, and we rose to the occasion to come and help. That's our story now. And then it goes on to the last sentence of, God, save, answer our cry. And so, it's challenging for me to be doing this vote now for the reasons that I mentioned. And so the parts that speak to me are the ones that acknowledge those challenges of 
God, help us do what we can do to help you and, and to praise you and to have you do what you do. Um, those are all the, the, the pieces that are really powerful for me in this period. So you talked a little bit about intentionality, um, but also, John, you just mentioned one example of sort of an, an unexpected encounter. Have you had any other unexpected encounters, people you've met, experiences over the past few months that were, I guess, unexpected or surprising that have come out of this horrific situation you've been in? So endlessly, they happen all day, every day. And I'm actually going to let Rachel mostly talk about it. But I do want to mention a couple, which is I've said that if there's one good thing in the last 136 days for us, it's that we've gone from seeing the worst in humanity to seeing the best in humanity. And it's manifested by the outpouring of support and love and strength that we get from so many people literally all day, every day, both virtually and in person. And, and I'll mention two examples from recently, which is among other activities, we each somewhat together and sometimes separately have been going into the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi world for strength and for brachot, blessings. And a few weeks ago, I was in B'nai Brak one night, and on the same night, I had two really interesting experiences. I was with one gadol who asked everybody to leave the room. So it was just the two of us sitting. And he's the one who acknowledged what I mentioned earlier in the conversation. He said to me, I'll bet people are saying stupid things to you nowadays. I said, they are. And he said, obviously, nobody means it. They just don't know what to do. And they're awkward. And he just went right there, which I thought was interesting. Then from, from meeting him, I went to meet with Rav Zilberstein, who was in the midst of giving a shiur, a class in the hospital in B'nai Brak, Yeshua. And I walked into the room in the middle of his shiur, a full room of mostly Haredi men. And one of his handlers went over to him and said, quietly that the father of a hostage just came into the room and he mid-sentence closed his gemara hit the table and he said in hebrew friends we must stop the class now this is a matter of pikuach nefesh a matter of saving a life we're going to start to recite to Hillam. and this is a room full of people who i don't normally mix with and he went on to lead the room in the most tearful emotional intentional recitation of Tehillim and the whole room just got into it and embraced the moment and came over afterwards and physically embraced me. And I thought, I, I never mix with this community, but they are doing what it is that they can do during this difficult time for us as a family, for the whole country. And we, we have so many moments of that kind of unity and beauty all day, every day that are really inspiring. And so what I was going to share was that people are often saying to us in different interviews, they'll say, oh, you've met with, you know, the pre these presidents or you've met with these prime ministers or you met with the pope or you met with this famous person. Like, who's given you the most, uh, you know, encouragement? And and honestly, it is not any of those people. And it is who John is talking about. I was thinking for me. Um, I've spoken now in Ramat Beit Shemesh a couple of times, and those evenings with just women that are Haredi women who are, 
you know, on the surface, they might look at me and think like, oh, we, we don't seem the same, or I might look at them and think that, and we are exactly the same. And they have been so strengthening to me, so supportive. It's like, in fact, after I spoke in Ramat Bechemish the first time I spoke in Gimel and Dalid, I, I was going to then be speaking in Aleph, but it wasn't until the following week. And then I started to have a very bad week. Uh, just a lot of stuff was going on. I mean, every single day is torture, as you can imagine. And then there's days that are extra torture because there's things that are going on that are extra torturous. And I kept saying, I can't wait to go back to Ramat Chemish. Like I needed a dose of these powerful, mighty Eshet Chayel women to lift me up again. And I was counting, literally counting the days. And then on that day, I was counting the hours until I got to go there. And I was so thankful to be back in that room uh, with these, you know, mighty women of, of faith and, and of strength. And, and also I'll, I'll do a shout out to the Christian community that has been so unbelievably good to us. And there are groups of Christians that have come to Israel and small groups. I'm not talking about talking in front of hundreds of people. I went to a group one Motzei Shabbat a few, about a month ago, and it was maybe a room of 25, 20 people. I really don't know. They were so amazing, just regular people and, and sharing their own challenges and what has helped them and which Tehillim have helped them and how prayer has helped them and and just sharing one woman said to me afterwards, she stayed and she said, you know, you're going through ambiguous trauma, which is different than normal trauma, which is when you're just walking down the road and you're hit in the back by a truck that you didn't see coming. That's normal trauma. And it knocks you on your back if it doesn't kill you. And, and you have to decide, how am I going to recover from this hit out of nowhere? Ambiguous trauma is the truck is still on you. We are, are 136 days in to a truck stilling, still being on top of us. And this woman, this lovely Christian woman explained, she's also in a form of ambiguous trauma because of something she's going through with her son. And she was the one who actually taught me this idea because John and I would often get into bed at night and say, well, we, we failed because now we made it through another day of working our butts off for, you know, 18, 20 hours and he's still not home. And she said, you cannot say that to yourself. You have to get into bed at night and say, I did every single thing I could today to save him. You have to change the narrative. And when she did that, it was such a gift she gave to us because now we are, we work as hard as we possibly can. And when we get into bed, we know that we're one step closer, even if we don't know how many more steps we have to take. It's like she gave me a lesson. She gave me her Torah of forgiving yourself when, when the desired goal isn't met that night. I struggle to find the words. And, and I, I personally am very, very inspired by your John and, and you, Rachel, your, your poise. And I, I don't want to use the word strength because I, I know, Rachel, you've spoken a few times about having strength but not feeling strong. But I, I, I'd be interested to hear if you can put it into words how it is you're able to go through those 18, 20 hour days more even and feel as if you're putting everything in, in a situation where all of us in Israel all of us in, in the diaspora um, feel hopeless, feel 
week feel as if there's there's nothing more that we can do so how how are you able to sort of draw that strength for lack of better words i would I'd also just like to add to that because rachel in general um i've heard from anybody that reaches out to you how you respond immediately and that's not that's not a given in a situation that you and john are in to be able to respond to people and with again without not trying to sound uh, I can't even think of the right word, but in return, you're you you're giving you're giving the rest of the am chizuk, like without me necessarily like realizing it, but like how you're in turn you're both of you are turning around and just providing us with with uh, with what everybody needs during these tragic tragic days. Well, I'll say just a couple of quick things on that, which is number one, and this is really not meant this false modesty, but we always talk about how we're doing everything we can to save our son, which is what any other parent we know would do to save their own loved one. And it's what 133 other families are doing right now as well. Within that, one of the answers is we could every day get up and decide we're not getting out of bed today. Or Rachel sometimes has talked about her, her temptation to just roll up on the floor in a ball. That isn't productive. And so we don't have that luxury to do that. We need to be in Asia, in action mode at all times. Um, a, we need to be, and B, it just helps us get through our days. But the other piece of it is what we've been talking about for the last few minutes, which is... I really feel like we aren't on this journey alone. We are part of millions of people around the world who are now on this mission with all of the hostage families. We hear it, we see it, the strength we get in Israel, outside of Israel, from Jews, from non-Jews. It's like, we have to do this for Hirsch, we have to do this for ourselves, and we have to do this for the millions of people who give us strength every day, who are part of this journey, it's an obligation to keep on going is how I look at all of it. I agree. I mean, I think I've, I've said before, first of all, it's not even a choice. It is literally a primal innate, uh, you know, natural response of any parent, even in the animal kingdom, you know, if, if a, an, a bear thinks that you're getting too close to its cub, it goes wild. And, you know, I mean, that is, our, our natural reflex when you think that your child is in danger and we know our child is in danger. Um, and so there's not a lot of thought that goes into how are we going to get up and do this again? It actually is like springing from the bed with not a lot of sleep and just running. And um, our, our friend Ruby Hen, who also has a child who is being held hostage. He said, you know, the problem is that we're in a marathon, but since we don't know how long, it's actually not a marathon because it's much longer than a marathon and we don't know the timing. So you have to sprint because, you know, time is of the essence. And we know that time is, is, is so dangerous for these hostages. So we're sprinting marathons, like ultra marathons every day to try to save these, these 134 souls. And, um, and I also think that there is an element of we are in trauma, 
But I actually, when I say we, obviously John and I, obviously the families of the entire 134, and I dare say we, the entire family of the entire Am Yisrael, not the country of Israel, but the entire Am Yisrael worldwide in the most far-flung places on planet Earth, I think the entire people of the Jewish people are in a trauma right now. And we all have to stand up and be trying to save and fix what happened to our people. And we all have to be strong to do that. And that is also going to require courage and bravery and risks. And those are things that we should be proud of doing as Jewish people and that we should embrace because we are Jewish people. And that is what we do. Just, I'll just add to that. We've talked about Haredim and we've talked about different segments of society and one that we haven't mentioned, but it's, it's Tzahal, it's the soldiers and the number of them who come up to us on the street and just come over to us for a second and like in their gear, just heading home after 70 days of not being home and say, we're doing this to bring home Hirsch and all the others. And like, when you hear that and you know what they're doing to try to make that happen, it, it, it's, it's hard for us to not be doing everything we can. So, so as, as the war does continue and in Israel, we're seeing differing opinions of how things should move forward. And I think, Rachel, you alluded to this at the beginning. How can we stop bringing home the hostages from becoming a political issue or a divisive issue? How can we keep that at the forefront, separate from all discussions of how the war should move ahead? Well, first of all, I think, you know, it's interesting that for the first two months, I was constantly, both of us were constantly being asked in the news outside of Israel, the worldwide news about the hostage situation. And we constantly were trying to say, and this is what my message was when I was asked to speak at the UN in New York, this is a global humanitarian crisis in the micro, separate, separate from anything that is happening and something huge is happening in Gaza with us trying to, you know, trying to diminish Hamas's military capacity to replicate October 7th makes sense. Um, what I have been saying from the get-go is that if the exact same constellation of people who were originally kidnapped and held hostage if that same demographic, that, you know, baby up until 87 years old, that Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, that, you know, that cross-section of humanity representing originally almost 39 countries, I said at the UN 33, but I was corrected afterwards that they think that it was 39 countries. If all of those people had been kidnapped and taken, held hostage in Dallas, Texas, you can bet your bottom dollar that on October 8th, the entire world would have shown up to try to help them. The same way that a few years ago when that 
those boys from Thailand who were in a soccer team ended up in that weird cave and underwater and it took weeks and weeks, but the whole world came together to help save them. So all the more so now, we now have 134 people still left who represent 19 different nations, who still represent those five different religions and who now range in age as we know the youngest turned one a couple of weeks ago in january and the oldest is now 86 because the 87 year old was released in the first uh group of people that were released at the end of november what i think is ironic is that everyone was saying to me in israel everyone from every level down was saying you need to convince the world this is not a political issue this is a global humanitarian crisis and then all of a sudden in the last few weeks people within israel are trying to take this and create it create a political issue out of it which i find ironic since they were sending me to go and fight that very notion and i think that trying to divide Anyone try, anyone within the Jewish world trying to divide and say these 134 people are not part of Am Yisrael, I think it's actually the most cruel, sickening, and perverse thing you could possibly say to me about me, that I'm not part of this nation, that I'm not part of the Jewish people, that my son is not part of this and should, is not valued. Um, it's not recognizable to me. I grew up in a home that said Jews value life. I grew up in a day school with Karen that taught us that one of the rules when you come into this land is you do not do molech. You don't sacrifice children and people. I also remember learning, and I said this to John uh, two weeks ago, that I suddenly had this epiphany and I said, you know, I'm thinking of Ishmael. I'm thinking of Ishmael when Ishmael and Hagar were cast out into the desert and Ishmael starts to die because the, you know, he runs out of water and he cries out to God. He cries out to Hashem and Hashem says, I'm going to save him. And Rashi, you know, the Mephorshim say, what happened in that moment? Rashi says that the Malchim, the ministering angels came to God and said, what are you kidding? You're going to save him? He's going to be the progenitor, the father of Amalek and Haman and all the people who are going to hurt Israel, hurt your people in the future. He's going to be the father. If you save him, you are actually going to be hurting in the future, your people. And Hashem says, I am a God of Rachamim and I'm saving him. And I think to myself, if God could save Ishmael, how can we not save our own people, our own babies, our own children, our own grandfathers, our own brothers, our own spouses who are still there, not to mention the 19 young women who are still there who are all presumed pregnant by now. You're not going to save them? Who are we if we don't do that? I won't recognize who we are. And so to politicize this, I think, is the most cruel, manipulative thing that anyone across any spectrum in our community or outside of the community could possibly do. So based on that, which is so unbelievably powerful and strong, 
what do you need from us, from Am Yisrael, that here we are at a day 136? Like, what, what can we do to help you? So people ask that question, and we always say, oh, it would be so great if we had the answer, answer. right? But this is a complex problem. It's not a problem that can necessarily be solved by contacts or a network or money. Um, But there are many things you can do. There are. And those things include, number one, prayer helps. If that's your thing, pray, send support. That all matters. Number two, it's so important that the story not fall off the radar, certainly not here in Israel, which is less of a risk, but on a global level, news cycles move on and congressional cycles move on. And we must keep these stories of 134 individuals. It's not a number. It's everyone is a full world in and of himself or herself, we must keep telling these stories. You could follow Bring Her Home and spread the story. You could follow Bring Them Home Now and spread the stories, but keep the stories alive. You can call the United States administration and tell them that you're not okay with 134 hostages being held, of whom eight of them are Americans, of which six are believed to still be alive. They need to know that they must keep working until all of them come home. And increasingly what we're saying is, do the same thing for the cabinet here in Israel. Of course, they're working on the hostage issue. We need them working on it more urgently, bringing them home today. And it must be elevated to the degree of urgency because the one thing or one of the things that the hostages do not have is time. Time is of the essence, and we need to be working on that level of urgency. And I would say, you know, just the last thing on that topic is that John always says, The price that we will pay will be high. We know that. We all know that. That's the way it rolls here. But the price that we as a people, as a nation, as the Jewish people worldwide, that we will pay if we do not bring these hostages home alive will be so much higher because we will actually lose. It will be the worst loss when we are no longer who we claim to be or when we are no longer who we claim to have the values that we've always said that we've had, we won't be able to say that anymore if we forsake these people. And I do think that part of being Jewish is you do irrational things. We have chukim that we do that make, why are we doing shotness? We don't know, we just do it. Like there are things that are bananas that we do. That's what we do, we're Jews, we do things that are crazy. And, and maybe maybe things, part of it is we don't do things that are logical. We don't do things that are in the box. We say, you know what? That person's over there. We're going to save them. And we do a lot of different things that just seem like they don't make sense. And that is something we should embrace. And that is something we should be proud of. And that is something that makes us chosen. And that is what makes us holy. Um, Rachel and John, thank you so much for sharing your words with us, sharing your Torah with us, um, and sharing your time with us, most importantly. Um, We'd really appreciate it. And I think what we can say is, obviously, is that we hope that by the time this episode is released, if not before then, um, Hirsch comes home together with all the other hostages. and, And please God, that should be very, very soon. Amen, amen. Thank you so much. much. Love you guys. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Thinking of you every day.
that's all we have time for this week. Uh, ordinarily, we would uh, give a plug of uh, where you can buy books and get discounts. We're not going to do that on this particular episode. Um, but please do, if you need to be in touch with us or you'd like to try and uh, reach out to uh, Rachel Goldberg and, and John Pollan, um, please uh, be in touch with us uh, at Corin Publishers on um, uh, social media podcast at corinpub.com uh, via email um, or see in the episode description for various links do make sure to go and follow bring hash home and bring them home now uh, for updates uh, and to make sure as uh, john said to keep the uh, the conversation going until next time this has been the current podcast <laughs>